0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and more importantly, I have the pleasure of welcoming back to the podcast, Dr. Newt Jacobson, who is editor of uh, a fascinating new uh, OUP publication, uh, Hindu Diasporas, uh, uh, as part of the Oxford History of Hinduism series. Uh, Newt, welcome back. Thank you. So, how did you
1: end up editing a volume on Hindu diasporas? So, uh, I have been uh, working on uh, the Hindu diaspora part part of my research for many years, um, and uh, uh, actually, the the, the the editor of the series, uh, the Oxford History of Hinduism, asked me uh, to uh, propose a volume on on the Hindu diaspora. So, I was uh, presenting some of my material on uh, God uh, Hindu goddess temples in uh, in Europe and Norway at the uh, Oxford Center for Hindu studies and in that connection Gavin flood uh, uh, asked me about it so uh, and then uh, mm-hmm. uh, I was also uh, able to present uh, one of my chapters uh, at the uh, um, Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies at a, a later location. Now this, he suggested a title Hindu Diaspora, but I changed it to Hindu Diasporas using the plural term because I thought that was um, uh, more um, kind of descriptive of, of the situation. The, the Hind- Hindus are part of many different diasporas. But the focus of the book is, of course, religion. So. I imagine the majority of our audience will
0: be familiar with the term diaspora, but let's perhaps unpack it a little bit. What is a diaspora? Uh,
1: another term as it's used now is, uh, has to do with migration. And uh, so it's uh, uh, it means that the migration migrations have taken place and that the group um, kind of... Uh, the identity of the group is connected to this uh, ancestral homeland, so that's uh, so that's part of their uh, kind of their collective identity. So it, it means dis- dispersal, and this dispersal, uh, if there is this con- uh, connection to the uh, to the original place then uh, we can talk about the diaspora. Uh, It has become very common as part of migration research. So I think the the term maybe had a more limited meaning, maybe 30, 40 years ago, but now it's connected to to one aspect of of migration. And of course, religion plays an important, important role in connecting to that ancestral uh, uh, homeland, uh, and therefore, um, it has uh, it is yeah it has particularly interest for religious studies. It's part of the kind of the global dynamics of religion, I would say.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a prevalent and fascinating and, and sort of increasing phenomenon. And if I'm not mistaken, the term uh, literally comes from uh, a Jewish term. For the scattering of the seeds, but you know, so so we have Hindus all over the world.
1: Yes, um... it's a, it's used actually a Greek word, so it means dispersal of the Greeks to the to the island. But for the Jews, it has a particular meaning because there it was kind of people without land, so it was that. But now it's used by a person who really, I, I mean, belonged have come from nations, so they are so in a way they are not without land but it's th- that dispersal so mm-hmm. so
0: w- we have Hindus all over the world um uh, you know when when did this start when do we ha- when are some of the earliest um uh diasporas Hindu diasporas mm.
1: so the first uh a- a chapter of the book is about uh, Cambodia, and uh, the spread of, uh, I mean, you find the Hindu tradition in Southeast Asia, and uh, then how did that come about in the first millennium of the common era? So then, I think maybe 100, 150 years ago, it was proposed that this had to do with migration from India. But then as this has been researched, um, it has more to do with kind of trade seafarers uh, and and movement of um, maybe Brahmins uh, and and, and traders who would settle for some periods uh, so that, uh, uh, I mean, it's still Open, but research now think that that is not not that kind of diaspora as we you talk about that Uh, 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 as we use the term now. But it was certainly uh, an enormous influence of Sanskrit and Hindu Buddhist culture. Uh, But uh, the diaspora diaspora, uh, comes about with the kind of with the, the the British Empire. Uh, and, the, and, and the movement of people without, within the, the, the kind of the, colon, Brit, the, the British, French, and uh, other colonial empires. Uh, and it really takes off uh, with the uh, indentured labor. So that is the prohibition of slavery in 1833 in the British Empire. And uh, then uh, the, the replacement of slave labor uh, and uh, uh, then, uh, the, I mean, this was uh, uh, part of the kind of plantation economy uh, that uh, the slaves would not work on the plantations once they didn't have to. And then uh, uh, I think the, the, the colonial powers tried different things, but what worked best was the recruitment of labors in India and on five and 10 years contracts. Uh, And the the, the recruiters were paid uh, and uh, there was uh, a lot of ethical problems around it. Uh, And uh, uh, my impression is that the, the Indian indenture labors, at least the first decades were not treated very be- much better than than uh, the slaves. Uh, so there has been a, a lot of attention to the Atlantic slave trade, but actually the trade in the Indian Ocean, which also was quite large, has not been, uh, I think, given enough attention. But, but that's how the, the, the diaspora takes off. And uh, and it uh, these indentured uh, labors uh, go to uh, uh, yeah, to Trinidad to Guyana South America uh, Mauritius to Southern Africa uh, Fiji so very widespread um, around the world so that is the uh, now to some of these places like Mauritius there are also Hindus who had traveled before, uh, uh, traders, and uh, uh, who had actually managed to get land and were in a very different uh, economic situation, but the numbers were smaller. So it's with the indentured labor that we can talk about the old diaspora. Uh, And their situation, of course, was very different from what we call the new diaspora. Which is the migrations after, let's see, nineteen sixty-five, or where it really takes off. So
0: let's uh, let's stay with the the old diaspora for a moment. This this movement through indentured labor. So we have uh, uh, thousands of laborers who are being um, moved across the ocean for the sake of of work. So these are these are workers. These are laborers. Mm-hmm. So given that context. How is it that Hinduism, how is it that the religiosity Mm. is transmitted, is preserved? You know, one might think, I mean, obviously, if you have experience on the ground, you see that it's been quite vibrantly uh, preserved and transplanted, so to speak. But one might think, well, we have a class of laborers and we have, you know, whereby does the religion get transplanted?
1: Mm. So, of course, these were poor people. And uh... Uh, so uh, it it gets transplanted on these very kind of small temples for protection gods and goddesses so uh, maybe hanuman who is also a kind of protector god so it's uh, uh, and i think maybe in the beginning that's this is not the first the first concern because there are so much troubles but it gets uh, 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 it's not forgotten but it's being built up and typical non-brahmanical type of uh, uh of religion and often gods and goddesses having to do with protection so so they would be in a they would get at the plantation maybe some corner there would be uh Uh, a small place for these protection gods and goddesses. And interesting, if you go and visit today, maybe there would be a large Brahmanical temple there. So these many of these temples that are today Brahmanical and kind of significant classical agama types of temples started as a a small, uh, maybe a stone with red paint, etc., so there has been a kind of an enormous development
0: do uh, we have a sense of so how to say so we have these um these simpler um, shrines established by the laborers eventually developing into uh agamic temples proper through brahmanic means so then where do the brahmins come in where do where does a class of scholar priests come into this context or do they Hmm.
1: I think there there has been after nineteen seventy at least a revival of Hinduism in, in and Hindu traditions in many of these old diasporas. Uh, now the Arya Samaj sent missionaries to uh, these uh, old diaspora places, trying to promote their kind of uh, ideology. Uh, now there, uh, I mean, uh, Brahmins were also. Uh, traveling, going to these places, so uh, there would be uh, opportunities also for these uh, uh, Brahmins, and uh, uh, so you would get, maybe after a while, two types of of temples, uh, non-Brahmanical and non-Brahmanical. So uh, with the But one of the chapters of the book on the Tamil-Shaiva diaspora is very interesting on this uh, topic because it shows that before the 1970s, Shaiva Tamil Brahmins would not travel abroad. I mean, maybe a few did, but, but it was not very common and it was considered a negative thing. Uh, But uh, when this changed in the 80s, it has changed so that it has become the kind of the ambition of young Tamil Shaiva priests to do, uh, to go abroad and work on on these temples in the diasporas. So that has become a a kind of a a good way of life. Uh, And uh, many of these uh, Tamil Shaiva uh, uh, Brahmin priests uh, Working in temples, you know, a few years here, a few years there. So, <laughs> one on one of my field trips in this connection in uh, in in Malaysia, in a Tamil temple there, I just talked with a Tamil priest, and he, and he showed me, you know, on his phone that he had been in Oslo, the capital of Norway, a, a year ago, and in a few months he was going to start work in a temple there. After having worked in a, a Tamil Shaiva temple in Malaysia for some years, so there is this now this global market of, for uh, for these uh, Tamil Shaiva priests, which w- would have been unthinkable fifty years ago. Uh, a- the,
0: it's it's incredible. It really is incredible. The power of innovation, adaptation, and this this really um, this this this. Uh, peculiar but useful sort of mix within the Hindu world of 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 other uh, tradition and other innovation, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know we we think of you know Hinduism might be technically the world's oldest living religion, but 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 what what parts of it what parts of it have remained untouched and and, and untransformed and uh, you know uh, there's a there is. One temple that, that I visit, just because it's, it's it's just a gorgeous, glorious temple, it's it's north of Toronto. I don't have any particular connection to the Tamil community personally, in my own heritage, but it is a, it is a Tamil temple in Richmond Hill. It's a large and, and relatively old. They began building it in the late 70s or early 80s, which is, I mean, uh, to, even Toronto was sort of white and bright then, much less uh, an hour away from Toronto. It's incredible, actually. Um, and I had this this rather surreal experience where uh, earlier this year, I went to do to Australia for the first time to, to hold a retreat. I've been holding international retreats and I was in Brisbane and the flight, you know, the flight left me a little bit discombobulated. And for some strange reason, I woke up Friday morning, I had a few hours. I had to get to to, to Byron Bay where the retreat was later that, that evening, but I had the day to kind of rest and do something. And I thought to myself, I had this, this intuition, you know what? I want to seek out a temple. I don't know why. Uh, perhaps part, you know, armchair ethnography. Perhaps part, just looking to center and and recharge before I had to uh, discharge this retreat. And um, just the intuition said, you know, so I said, okay, well, let me be a millennial and pull up my iPhone and look in Google Maps and see, you know, Hindu temples. And of course, a zillion come up because there are a zillion Hindu temples in every major city these days. But okay, great. And I see one, I said, one's called a Durga temple. Okay, well, let, let's see, let's see some Shakta traditions. As you, as you may know, my, much, of my, um, much of my writing is on, on goddess narratives. So let me see, let me see this Durga temple. Mm. Tiny temple in the middle of nowhere. I go there, I talk to the man, he asked me, you know, he he speaks Tamil and and I speak no Tamil so we're speaking in English and he, he, you know, I said, I'm I'm from from Toronto. Basically, he used to work at the Richmond Hill Hindu Temple an hour north of Toronto. His brother-in-law is the head priest there and here he is in Brisbane and I'm thinking to myself, well, what are the odds that I fly across the world? and it's a, it's it's the same Vamsha, it's the same lineage it's the same family officiating it's, it's it's fascinating so so i have direct knowledge of what you mean by there's this wonderful uh, not to denigrate it but there's this wonderful sort of spiritual franchising of 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 um of officiation which is great
1: mm-hmm. um so the whole world has isn't uh, is now hindu space so. <laughs> and, and i
0: just love if ever i catch a temple if ever i catch like a, a puja where they're either either doing like a a, a, yagya, a homam like a fire ritual or something more elaborate you know the sankalpa there's a ritual sort of stamp or they announce it's brilliant they, they locate the ritual in 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 sacred space and sacred time hmm. and they and, and you will all of a sudden you'll hear you'll hear sanskritized versions of you know um canada in the country of canada hmm. <laughs> ontario <laughs> Pradesh, in the province of ontario toronto nagare <laughs> they're locating the they're locating the, 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 the ritually locating the, 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 themselves within where they are physically in, in uh, and it's fascinating utterly fascinating hmm. okay so um so the early chapters of of the volume talk about the um Perhaps the first waves of migration uh, due to indentured labor. How many uh, Hindus? How many folks do we have
1: uh, as part of this wave, ish? No, I'm um, I, I'm not sure actually of the actual numbers, but uh, <clears throat> um, because uh, people also did return, and then so uh, yeah, yeah. I, I I'm not sh- sh- sure about it. I mean um uh, the, the number they, the numbers are not that high um uh, I mean um, like in because these places were small like Mauritius there were I think no population there before or hardly any it was an unpopulated island the Fiji quite small uh, island. And then uh, Suriname maybe 34,000 of Surinam, Mauritius, 60,000, but I should be careful with those. With no,
0: no, indeed, in, in the tens of thousands, for sure, mm. in the tens of thousands, for sure, and, and probably in the Caribbean overall, probably close to about half a million laborers yeah. overall, just to give folks who are listening a sense, of course, you know, those interested for research and teaching and personal interest will, of course, uh, well of course uh purchase the book and dive in but just to give sort of an overview um uh, you mentioned earlier that that beyond this sort of early wave uh this wave in beginning uh mid 19th century ending early 20th century of, of indentured labor that we have sort of
1: this this the second wave of, of, of Hindu migration tell us about that I I should say though before we start that there is also this Kangani system that is goes to Malaysia, Burma, and the hills in 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 Sri Lanka, and there I think we are talking about maybe th- four million something like that. So that was really much bigger numbers because these were were very close, much closer to to, to India, so the travel was much shorter. Uh, so. Uh, so that was, uh, I mean, a, a little bit similar, but here it was uh, uh, the recruitment system was a little bit different and the salary system a little bit different. But uh, um, uh, and of course uh, with the, the, the distances being shorter, uh, there also the kind of going back and forth a little bit different. But uh, then with the new diaspora. Uh, Let's see, after the, let's say 1947, with the independence of India, uh, that would be a a way to start it. But but if we look at Britain, the the migration to Britain of Hindus before 1960 was really very limited. Uh, There there were Indian, uh, I mean, sailors and factory workers, but actually the majority were Sikhs and, um, and Muslims. So that the Hindus were quite few, and there is a very interesting study on uh, the uh, on uh, uh, Indians in Britain. Britain, maybe 63, Who uh, and the author makes a point to explain why there will never be Hindu temples in India, in England, and explain why Hindus don't need temples; they can worship in a home, etc. So. Uh, Then by by the the 1960s, this changes. And in the United States, they talk about 1965 because of the change of the um, immigration uh, laws. Uh, But in Europe, um, migration from India and South Asia takes off during those same years. Uh, So the first Hindu temple in Britain, for instance, opens in 1967. Uh, and already in the nineteen beginning of the nineteen seventies, the planning of the first kind of uh, monumental Hindu temple in the United States starts. Uh, so, so it after that it goes quite quickly. Uh, uh, so that's the and then the same I think to Australia also that uh, type of migration uh, and it is. Uh, uh, kind of a mixed migration to Britain in the beginning labor migration, but then also uh, people come for education and then also um uh, more middle class type of occupations. Uh, so uh, it creates uh, yeah, kind of very pluralistic type, I would say. Uh, dominated by um, Gujaratis play an important role, and then with the kind of Africanization uh, politics in Eastern Africa, uh, the, 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 the movement of, uh, uh, of Indian migrants from East Africa uh, to, to to Europe. Uh, it's an interesting thing that uh, India was asked to uh, uh, admit some of those uh, uh, Indians from East Africa to come to India. But the Indian government said that these people are not Indians. They are now Africans. So the idea that the Indian state, their kind of uh, embracement of an Indian diaspora happened in the 1990s. Uh, even uh, when with Indian independence in 1947, uh, India had to decide the Indian state had to decide about the the, the the diaspora. and they denied that these people were Indians that they that India had no responsibility for them and that they should adopt adapt to the and assimilate in the nation that they lived in. So it's a very interesting history on 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 the uh, on the, on the the Indian state nation states view of the what we today call Indian or Hindu or which is part Indian diaspora, which a large part of of that is Hindu diaspora. It was only in the 1990s this changed, and you, and in a book we I discuss why did this happened. Uh, um, and of course, the, 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 the diaspora, the Hindu diaspora, or Indian diaspora in the United States played an important role in this, changing the perception of who the, the diaspora people were, uh, the, the indentured labour were low cost, um, and uh, and while the the, the 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 Hindu diaspora in the United States were upper caste, very successful middle class, they had economic resources that India needed, etc. So it's a very interesting. Uh, that's why some would say that it's kind of the Indian diaspora is a polit- very politicized concept, but it's also I would say a kind of an a, a kind of an academic concept also. So whatever the Indian state might think about it the from a religious studies point of view the hindus the dispersal of hindus around the world uh, would be the same in a way it's still a hindu diaspora
0: so yeah it raises some very interesting questions about identity and about um about uh you know national identity versus religious identity versus ethnic identity and and, and there, there are fascinating parallels i mean Um, Oftentimes when I use the word Indian as in, you know, Indian religions, uh, I think most people gather by now, I mean, civilizational, you know, South Asia, you know, Bharata, you know, not nation state. So a great analog that is around the same age is Israel. Israel, the nation state, often gets conflated with israel the covenant israel the you know the 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 the, the people the culture the, the, the you know and so we use the word indian in in many ways and so when you have for example hindus who are um second and third generation american or canadian or australian or 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 or, or british you know then they have a nation state uh you know i i know uh, a number of people um a number of jews in toronto who feel a call to the nation state of israel a number who feel that they have a nation state it's called canada <laughs> and 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 so so the fascinating um the phenomenon you're pointing to raises fascinating questions about uh politics and identity and 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 of course caste and you know the idea also that the, the now more antiquated idea, but the, in in traditional orthodox Hindu culture, that once you cross the river, that's it, you've you've lost ties with the motherland, you've lost caste. Period, you know, you're you're de facto outcast because you've, you 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 you've crossed the ocean, you've left the motherland. So it really really is fascinating. Um, what are some of the most uh, popular uh, uh, or densely populated? Spaces. What are some of the most common destinations uh, across the Hindu
1: diaspora? Mm. Uh, the the largest uh, population of uh, Hindus outside of South Asia is in Bali, Indonesia, around four million. And then uh, United States, two and a half million Hindus. Uh, in uh, in, Euro- in Europe, in, in Canada, I think more than. Around half a million, maybe, and uh, in uh, in Europe, two million altogether. But half of that is is in Britain, one million Hindus. So that's uh, while uh, in other European countries, France, uh, uh, Germany, uh, Portugal, Italy. So the migration to Europe was is very much shaped by colonial history in a way, that uh, it, it, Tamils uh, are would go to France. So the most spoken South Asian language in France is Tamil. And uh, the, the greatest number of, uh, of Hindus with the Tamil background in France uh, are actually from Sri Lanka. Ilan Tamils, uh, and they, uh, interestingly in Europe, they make up a majority of Hindus in several countries like Germany, Switzerland, Dan- Scandinavian countries, uh, while in uh, in Britain, uh, Hindus from Gujarat, uh, especially coming from East Africa, um, make up the, the, the majority in... Uh, uh, <coughs> in the United States, uh, um, Vasudhan Narayanan, who, who writes about that chapter, uh, I think uh, uh, writes that about half of the, uh, the Hindus in the United States have uh, college degrees, or that is yeah. kind of that higher education, first and second. So it's it's also the, the wealthiest uh, uh, Hindu, uh, uh, population in the world, uh, and she makes a very interesting uh, comparison between the temple building craze that was in Cambodia in the first millennium, and also in in in, in partly in, in in Southeast Asia, but with Angkor Wat uh, and what happened in the United States with the building of monumental temples. She thinks that this has a kind of uh, the last time you had this kind of a uh, temple building. Uh, uh, enthusiasm was in, the, in the, the Khmer kingdom and then in the United States in the in 20th, 21st century, which is a very interesting uh, comparison and, uh, and also, uh, yes, in the United States also very interesting di- dynamics, I think, with this uh, establishment of uh, monumental temples also as pilgrimage places and, and and symbols and uh, and cultural centers and yeah
0: so for those listening the first part of the book covers a number of geographical locations of course uh vasudan uh, um article on um cambodia in the first millennium and of course um uh, the caribbean uh, Suriname in particular, uh, Africa, uh, Australia, New Zealand, um, yeah Europe, America, and the second part of the volume talks not about places but themes. So let's maybe turn to that. What are some themes that we see prevalent themes across the Hindu diaspora?
1: Mm. So I wanted to cover I mean the 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 largest groups. Uh, And one theme that we already talked about is the the Tamil Hindu diaspora. It's a a a global phenomena, and it's quite dominant in many countries. Uh, And it has this, uh, we already talked about, but but there there are this uh, uh, kind of the whole world has become that type of Tamil Shaiva space. They are a And uh, then uh, uh, the the second theme is about the Gujarati diaspora. That's also a a kind of a a, a dominant diaspora. Those two are the largest one. And interesting, one is Shaiva and one is Vaishnava. So I thought that also was somewhat representative to to focus on these two themes. Uh, And then... uh, 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 yeah, the, the, that chapter uh, uh, on the Gujarati diaspora has one very good, nice feature is that she also studies some part of uh, kind of uh, um, what you see views and understanding that are not necessarily manifest in the temples. But, but get manifest in, in, in f- family religion. And she talks about boots and, uh, and uh, I mean idea of ghosts and, uh, and uh, some of these kind of folk traditions, which I think are understudied. Uh, and then uh, uh, a third chapter is then on shaktism and uh, the Shakta uh, traditions which are also with a focus on temples, I think. Uh, Because uh, uh, also, uh, at least uh, from my own study of Shakta tradition in Europe, is that these traditions are often somewhat I don't know exactly how to say it, but some of the Shakta are quite unique. Depending, have, they have dependent on individual persons who have had uh, maybe a vision of the goddess uh, 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 being asked to build a temple at that particular spot. Uh, and so, one the largest Hindu temple in uh, continental Europe is a is a Shakta temple, a Tamil. Ilan Tamishakta Temple. Uh, and then, of course, there is a, a chapter on the temple, in the, the Hindu temple in the diaspora, uh, and a chapter on uh, the, uh, pilgrimage places, that is the establishment of Tirtas outside of, of South Asia, which uh, I have written. I find that it's a very, I'm interested in Tirtas and pilgrimage, and it's a fascinating... Thing that, uh, and I think that's part of, I think, maybe old uh, conceptions of Hinduism kind of maybe misunderstood this ability of the Hindu tradition to globalize. uh, Because uh, wherever Hindus settle, their gods travel with them and their and the sacred sites are, are unproblematically established at these places. So the, so the establishment of Tirtha's seeing the sacred at sites, I think then is a part of Hindu, uh, the Hindu view of the world, and not something limited to the geography of, of India. And then uh, there is a chapter on Hindutva, and, uh, in the in diaspora, and I think with a very good conclusion which I can, that is that uh, politically the Hindus in the diaspora are as, you know, polarized as they are in India, so there is all, there are all kinds of views, the diaspora is not to be identified with any particular political views, uh, and then <clears throat> one chapter on uh, which I was interested. I was interested in the interaction or a lack of interaction between uh, the diaspora Hindus and um, what's called new Hindus or Hindus uh, people converting to Hinduism or becoming followers of of Hindu t- gurus or Hindu practices. Uh, and uh, Amanda Lucia has written a, a chapter on on the guru movement, uh, which. And uh, kind of uh, uh, on uh, yes, I mean you have to read it. It's an excellent chapter. But on uh, I mean the early the early good also came to United States. They kind of used uh, kind of the Orientalist idea, idea of of India very actively to promote their their. Their, their own uh, teachings and which was very successful uh, and then uh, on iskon the last chapter is on iskon and Hari Krishna movement because uh, there you have I think in there some of their temples at least maybe the the, the m- m- most interaction between uh, diaspora Hindus and new followers uh, bhaktivedanta manure in in outside of London the George Harrison, uh, temp, the Krishna temple that he gave to Iskon and then you know the Gujarati Hindus moved in that area and in a way I would I wouldn't say took it over but they became you know it became their temple also so that's an interesting kind of movement where you can see these two uh, kind of uh two types of Hindus we could say then and the uh, where they meet them. And then notably also the interests are often quite different. I think the Iskon they often kind of were reacting against, uh, I mean, they were their motivation was a critique of a culture. They wanted to kind of to spiritualize the world uh, against materialism, et cetera. While for the Hindus, going to a temple is more the preservation, I think, of, of kind of an everyday uh, and kind of an everyday practice, not a critique necessarily of of, of the world, but a way to, to kind of to go on living in the world. So so there there, uh, so there is this at least potential uh, of uh, of a. Uh, of having very different approaches to, to 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 the use of religion and so
0: fascinating themes all um and <laughs> without playing favorites which we don't do um i i also was quite uh, did, uh did all fascinating and important works but i, I quite enjoyed uh, amanda Buccia's paper very cheekily named uh persistent fictions <laughs> 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 the extent to which the global gurus, you know, well they perhaps may be um uh, uh the, the, the um propagating spiritual truths, nevertheless <laughs> in order to do so, <laughs> they were propagating sociocultural uh concepts related to 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 caste hierarchies and uh, the, the well-trodden tropes. So fascinating mm. work. Um so from your perspective you know when you edit a volume like this you are afforded a bird's eye perspective and you you know how do i phrase this um i phrase i ask this question often but i I find different ways to phrase it pending the the particular conversation you know what was impressed upon you you know did anything surprise you did anything strike you uh, about
1: this array of, of papers hmm yeah, I think they were <laughs> all very good, and uh, 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 that's a difficult question. I I wouldn't say that I was surprised by anything, because but I was um, I I would think it rather confirmed, and uh, I expanded on my empirical knowledge, but uh, and I got. Uh, what uh, I think more examples to confirm ideas about this that I already uh, have. I think so. I, I I don't think the book, you know, I mean it for people who have less knowledge about this, they will maybe learn new kind of uh, large uh, kind of things. But uh, but uh, but but I think. I mean, I was surprised about one thing, and that was that I didn't know uh, before how the Indian nation state has de- had dealt with the with the with the diasporas uh, before. I mean, from nineteen forty seven, and when it changed in the late nineteen nineties, I, 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 it was new to me that uh, the Indian nation state uh, were unwilling to accept anyone from East Africa uh, who didn't have any, uh, I mean, they had, uh, I think they had British passports, uh, because uh, that's part of that, uh, but um, but so that I was actually, that I read it, I was quite shocked about it, and also that they, the Indian nation refused the Indian population in that indenture labor that, they, or the the, the the Indians in Malaysia, Burma, etc., to 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 accept them as Indians. Uh, I mean, because we had been so used to thinking. I mean, I have at least become so used to thinking that these. This was an Indian diaspora, and uh, and that uh, so that was sh- quite shocking to me. I have to say, so mm. so I write about that intro- introduction essay quite a bit, because uh, and then and it made me understand also how kind of the change in 1990 how dramatic that was. I knew from before that in Indian movies. Uh, persons who came from diaspora and who had role in 1970s, 80s, they were often ridiculed a little bit. In the movies, they were looked at kind of simpletons, outsiders, while in the Bollywood movies in the 1990s, they become heroes. So there is this transformation, uh, which is part also of globalization, of course, uh, and many things, but it is uh, kind of an interesting, and it was shocking to me to see uh, what happened in 1940, and there are good reasons for why maybe the Indian nation-states did. I mean, it was a new nation-state. It was one of the first colonies to gain independence. There were many things going on. So someone has to understand it in its own context. But as we read it today, uh, it's quite, you know, I mean, surprising, I would say. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. It's uh, it's it's
0: great that overarchingly, you know, from what, what i'm gleaning from what you're saying you know studying studying uh the hindu diaspora yourself uh you probably had a you had a great deal of knowledge and also as, as with all of us who study we have a great deal of suspicions we have mm-hmm. a great deal of things that we suspect to be true or intuit or generalizations that we can draw or infer mm-hmm. uh, and it's always nice to have the data confirm what we suspect but now this process sounds like one where you've been afforded the opportunity to empirically verify many of your suspicions about the hindu diaspora mm-hmm. um, regarding the part that surprised you thank you for sharing that it's i, I find it fascinating uh, for me personally uh, perhaps if i were if 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 perhaps if i were in your perspective i too would be surprised by that but in my particular case the only reason i'm not remotely surprised by that is because of my own um lived experience hmm. so i was born in what was used to be british guyana oh. and so i came to toronto at a very very young age yeah. and toronto has been home and so you know there are a number of experiences one has throughout the 80s yeah. uh, regarding experiences with um people who have been in toronto forever uh immigrants from a variety of backgrounds and um times have changed now a great deal because now who knows who's from where, you know, you, 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 (laughs) you, you you visit Italy and you, 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 you see, you see a person who appears of Indic origin, but they speak Italian with an English, they speak English with an Italian accent as if somebody who's been in, you know, in Venice for (laughs) 10 generations. And so, um, you know, but, but, you know, those from a West Indian background, in particular, I can say, they well know that they don't belong. They didn't belong to the, the world to which they emigrated. They were second class mm-hmm. citizens by and large. Times have changed, obviously, mm-hmm. and they did not belong among the Indian community from whom they were outcasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was a coin toss as to which <laughs> it was a coin toss as to which marginalization was more um, was more uh, visceral. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, when we think about it, I suppose part of the logic is that imagine the marginalization and even oppression that um, uh, perhaps peasants or laborers may have experienced within India on behalf mm-hmm. of ruling classes, on behalf of you know the middle class, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. it's a caste issue or a class issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's um, it, it is a fascinating phenomenon. And 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 these days. Um, we can no longer draw conclusions about you know someone might be of a west indian background but relatively successful someone might be uh born and bred in new york city and be a lazy bum
1: (laughs) (laughs) but it's it's fascinating to hear your your perspectives on that so so the world has become much smaller and that's a really good thing actually in the united states there are as many no, uh, people from norwegian background as there are norwegians in norway and the norwegian state was very clear that those norwegians who are left they are no longer norwegians so uh, it has so they had the same i mean uh, same view that this that uh, kind of the, the norwegian nation couldn't afford to have any kind of responsibility for uh, those people, Norwegians living in the United States, so it was probably a kind of a maybe a normal thing, but with the changing of the world and the world becoming much smaller and uh, more consciousness about it, uh, then these things uh, are also uh, or are also changing. So,
0: yeah, I mean, I I like the the parallel to the Norwegian situation. And what I would suspect is, by and large, as you say, it's an economic concern, um, perhaps even a cultural one. Mm -hmm. I would say that in the Indic context, the cultural dimension is uh, exasperated, uh, colored by class and caste issues. That are that 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 operate even within uh, the nation state much less uh, uh, without and and another piece that's interesting to me is I use the word Indian, I use the word indic more often than not. I didn't quite like the word at all for a number of years and in in recent years, I used the word indic to indicate Indian in a cultural sense because when I say Indian, people might think Indian in a, in a nation state sense, and of course, Think about uh, think about the indentured laborers in their thousands, uh, who who ended up in in the West Indies. This is long before the nation state was 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 forged, Absolutely. and so it's yeah. it, it really is a fascinating um, fascinating phenomenon. Um, the, the last question for you, you know, just. Say you were doing a, a public talk or teaching undergrads or, or, or you have a naive interlocutor like myself asking you, you know, a question along the following lines, how would you answer? So what are some of the features of Indian diaspora, of, pardon me, of Hindu diaspora? What are some of the overarching features that we can glean about the Hindu diaspora?
1: Mm. Well, I, I think one... Uh, one. Let's talk about religion then. So I would say that the centrality of the temple that has become, I think, that's a main feature, uh, and the preservation of uh, of uh, uh, or the presentations of uh, um, of uh, cultural tradition with, within the temple. Like dance traditions, language, clothes, etc. So I think, uh, they as a minority, uh, when people go meet in the temples often on for festivals, especially. So that's also a, maybe a, the diaspora phenomenon, a festivalization of religion. But when then people can be kind of hundred percent, let's see, South Asian Hindus. In the temple, it's South Asian languages. Uh, so, I think also um, the, uh, the religion is very important for the for the Hindu diasporas. I mean, religion in the temples, religion is being recreated. So the connection to South Asia is important. Uh, uh, let uh, with the let's see the let's see the Elam Tamil who are the great uh, temple builders in Europe uh, they kind of recreate kind of them the temple as the the place to preserve and maintain the Elam Tamil culture as much as possible. So even if they live separate places, they would meet there maybe, at, especially at festivals. So that will be, I, I think, one uh, from a Hindu point of view. Now, of course, Hinduism is a extreme diverse tradition or and that is also part of the diaspora. It's religiously very diverse, uh, but then dominated perhaps by some at least some traditions more than others, but Gujarati tradition, okay. But that's also very. These are also very diverse traditions. So that diversity and centrality of the temple and strong connections to to uh, uh, to South Asia often at least attempting to preserve South Asian languages, South Asian food, South Asian uh, clothing. Um, But maybe after a while, this will be in festival. uh, There will be a kind of festivalization of these items of the culture, maybe not uh, every day, but uh, yes, maybe that will be the three things that I could think of now.
0: Great. Well, thank you for indulging (laughs) me these, (laughs) these questions. I was chatting briefly with uh, um, a guest recently and, and, you know, I for for the vast majority of guests uh, we have never met and a good many guests, actually, I'd say over half, easily over half of my guests, I've never done a podcast before <laughs> so so you know we, we chat about you know briefly about the process and, and I, I said you know I, I ask just these general basic purposely naive questions and one of my guests said yes the hard ones <laughs> <I> said, <laughs> that's true <laughs> the, the hard ones oh so good um anyhow well thank you very much for being on the podcast today
1: so thank you for having me. So it was uh, nice to be able to to have this chat on, on on my book. So thank you. You're welcome.
0: For those listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Newt Jacobson, who is the editor of Hindu Diasporas um, uh, as part of the Oxford History of Hinduism series. Until next time, keep well, keep listening, uh, keep thinking, keep reading, and keep contemplating... Um, Keep contemplating the, the movement of peoples across, uh, across space and their um, expressions of religiosity in their new homes. Take care.